This morning, as we look at that, is um, I rarely come up with titles, but um, this will save uh, Jaira coming and asking me after service what the title is to put this online. Would be his righteousness, not ours. His righteousness, not ours. And as we've looked through Scripture, and you go through portions of Scripture, it is you study, and, and sometimes there are doctrinal theological debates over stuff. Or, or different views on things. And, and sometimes you, you study into it and you're like, yes, I totally see that. I'm on board. I agree with this person. And then you study a little more and then you're not convinced. You're like, no, 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 no. That, that guy had it off a little here. And you, go the, and, you, and you go there. But again, you can do that to the point of missing of what is going on. What is the point of the scripture? And there's little sections that, that kind of pop out and we'll see it. And I'm not going to um, chase rabbit trails because that's all they've been this week. Some of these things are, are rabbit trails. There isn't, God wasn't clear, definitive on that, and that wasn't the point of what he was teaching. So I really want to take a look at the context and what's going on here. And coming from the situation of last week where he's talking to his disciples, he's talking, clearly it says in the scripture, he's talking to his disciples about investing with what you have, your time, your money, and all that in eternity. To, to look at this life and using this mammon, money, and these things for eternity, not for this world. And um, I think Jim Elliott, uh, one of his quotes is, um, he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain for which that he cannot lose. At 23, he said that. I believe at 24 he lost his life for the gospel. And you sit there and you look at the wisdom and that there's, there's nothing in this world you can keep. But if you're investing in what you cannot lose in heaven and eternity, you're not a fool. And so as Jesus is sharing this, the Pharisees disagree. In verse 14, the Pharisees here respond and God corrects them and kind of warns them. It says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they, um, uh, oh gosh, that word now has just escaped me. But, but they basically sneered their nerves. They, they uh, degraded him. They, 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 the, the word really means to like put up your nose. And, and that term of, of raising your nose up, you know where that actually comes from? That's like saying you stink. So we have actually gone back to that terminology, you know, instead of saying, I stuffed my nose up in the air at you is, ooh, you stink, I gotta, you know, it's like you plug your nose and, and turn away. And uh, you can see in ancient times that would be a problem without running water and stuff, you would raise your nose at people. But they scoffed at him, they mocked him for this, this thought of don't worry about now, but eternity. And what you have to understand, there was Jewish sectors that didn't even believe in an ever, ever, uh, afterlife. They believed this was it. Which kind of baffles me. You think the Jews, they didn't believe. Some of them didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed once you died, you were gone. That was it. Poof. So this thought of investing in eternity and, and taking your riches and investing in those things, they, they scoffed at that ideal. They mocked it. And as they did that and they were pressing um, him in that situation, it's also important to understand the Pharisees' thought on things through the Old Testament. If you lived righteously in the Bible in the Old Testament, if you lived right before God, he would bless you. All through the nation of Israel, they were blessed when they obeyed God. When they did not obey God, 
They were cursed, there was calamities, they went off in slavery, all these things happened. Their mindset, the richer you were, the more healthy you were, obviously the more God loved you and blessed you. A sign of wealth was a sign that God was approving of you and your lifestyle in their minds. And so when you see that thought process and what Jesus was saying here and they're scoffing at it, they're, what do you know? You know, you're just a little carpenter. You're getting a crowd. I'm sure, you know, if you wanted to cash in, you'd be richer than all of us tomorrow. That's probably what they're waiting for, right? When's Jesus going to flip this and own a mansion, right? We use this, this fame. And, and so this is their thought process is, you know, if God loves you, he's going to bless you. And, and just the opposite, if you're not blessed, if you're poor, if you're sick, you deserved it. It's a sin in your life. There's some kind of unrighteousness that has put you in that situation and you earned it. And so this is their mindset. And so he now, because the Pharisees are responding and they are the key lovers of money, he, he tells you their heart here and why they were raising their nose and scoffing at him in that sense is because they're lovers of money. And he starts to correct them and, and really go after their heart again because he loves them and he cares about them. He's going to be truthful with them with some very hard truths that they don't see, that they're blinded to. And he said to them in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your heart. And we've seen this before when he's called them hypocrites. You do these things in front of people. You're more concerned about men and what men's approval are, men calling you righteous, than you are about your heart and where it is at with God. And so as they sit there and say, hey, you justify, your focus is on men, not God. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So what they were looking for was this esteem from men, this, this wealth, these things that would say they were righteous and they were godly by men, but to God, if they were to slow down and look at God's heart, he says they're an abomination. Now, an abomination, not a word we use. It's kind of foul. It's nasty. You know, I was trying to think of this. You know, sometimes we esteem things higher. I remember, for some reason, out of all the things as I'm sitting here thinking of this word, come to mind being a kid, and around the holidays you see the candy dish, right? And we had, like, M&Ms in it, and there was a really big one. And I was like, you couldn't touch it until it was time, and guests get there, you know, maybe sneak one. But there was a large one, and, you know, wow, that's, that's, you know, that's like a cluster of them. Somehow I'm sure it messed through their sorting process. You know, like, I don't know, jelly bellies have belly flops. Well, this would be an M&M flop, right? Big old thing right there. And I remember beforehand going, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to wait because that thing's going to be gone. And I remember grabbing it, chucking it in my mouth, and the, it was burnt peanuts. It was foul. It was an abomination of, of M&Ms. And, and, you know, and I sure esteem that thing. And what's even worse when you get one is if you don't have several other after to eat it down. Now you're trying to find something to drink. And, you know, it's the worst thing ever. Wreck a whole bag of M&Ms. So if somebody can invent a way they can weed those out before they get them, they're probably a rich person. But, I mean, this is an abomination. It, it is detestable. It's something you would spit or vomit out of your mouth. What, what they are looking for, what they feel they have to do to be righteous before God, God is considering that something nasty, foul. 
And, and it, it, you know, you sit here and you look at them, and when we look back in history, you can go, oh, of course, well, look at these Pharisees, look at this, and look at that. And even when you sometimes look through church history, you look at some of these guys, and again, it's church history, so it's what's recorded of the church. It isn't the church overall, what God's doing all over the world. But sometimes you look at these people and go, how can they call that a guy a church father? He's, how could he be even saved believing these things? You know, And we look at these things and you go, okay, God, how does this apply to now? Is there things in my life? Is there things in our heart? There's things in our culture that we allow that are an abomination that we don't even just allow, but we esteem and we put up and we put it on the level and we put to it as a goal. And so... They, they were sitting there and looking at it. And so he pulls this out. Jesus starts to talk to him. And he says, verse 16, it says, The law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. So he goes, hey, look, we have the law, Moses, the law and the prophet, the whole Testament to John the Baptist. Here's John the Baptist, the transition from the Old Testament to the New, considered the greatest prophet, the prophet that was prophesied about, the prophet that did see the Messiah. So we have the whole Testament from the law and the prophet all the way through to this point. This is the point of the law. This is the purpose. We are here for the kingdom of God. That was the whole point of this, the whole Testament. We are here, and to hear the kingdom of God is being preached, and it's not just being preached it's being accepted. We see sinners getting saved. And they're accepting Christ. And, and they are pressing into it. Could you imagine? I, just that word, it's like, can you, you know, what an awesome thing. What an awesome time. Can you imagine the gospel being shared and people pressing into it? You know, it's like you think of the times of a revival. People just what? I can be saved? I can have this? Mind you, when riches, wealth, and healthy, you know, healthy living and all this was the thought of being blessed by God, you had to be born of a certain tribe, of a certain this, of a certain nation, to be accepted by God. For the sinners and the people that have fallen short, this was awesome news. Of course they're pressing and fine. I can have a relationship with God. I'm whosoever. This is amazing. And so they're pressing in. Because it's there, the time has come, and the ones that were there that should have known, should have seen, are totally missing it. You know? But, but is the law void? Is, that, is this a whole new thing where were they totally wrong in, in trying to follow the law? Or what was the point of the law? And he answers that in verse 17, and it says, It's easier that heaven and earth pass away than for one, for one tittle or of the law to fail. So in other words, one jot or tittle, one was like a little mark, or if you would, a little hashtag. Sometimes they put little jots or tittles in the text to, to make it like a, you know, the change of a vowel sound. Any of that, it's better, the whole heaven and earth will pass away before any of that in the Old Testament, the law is invalid. So how does the law and the Old Testament apply to our lives properly in the proper aspect of our lives as Christians. Here these men thought they were fulfilling the law. They were going to the standard of the law. They, they were building on the law. They added more books into the law. They, you know, okay, if the line's there, we're going to back the line up here so we're more righteous. And they moved it again and again. And it's like, what was the purpose for the law? Well, the purpose of the law shows us one thing. None of us can do it. None of us can do it. You know, it's great if I go out and I share and say, hey, Jesus loves you. And you know what that person's thinking? 
Of course Jesus loves you. Jesus loves everybody that comes to the church, gives 10%. I would love you if you all came to my house and gave me 10%. Of course I love you. No, he loves you because he died. He saved you from something. What's the something? What's the consequence of coming? What's the judgment of coming? Here's the law. Here's God's standard, and you've fallen short. That's the whole gospel. Jesus saved you from the consequences coming. He loved you enough, even though you fell short and you deserve hell now, he loves you, and he's willing to die for you. That's the whole gospel message. That's the complete of it. And when you slow down and you look at it, and here they were trying to use the law to make themselves righteous. If I fulfill these guidelines, I'm righteous. Look, I got more of this down than the rest of you. I, I, I am more righteous. But yet their heart wasn't in it. They were filling out a list of do's and don'ts instead of actually having a relationship with God. And when it comes down to it and you look at that, and these men... Through this process, Jesus is going to bring that out. You think you've met every requirement of the law? Well, let me tell you. Let me explain where you're missing the point, the heart, the righteousness, the real righteousness, what the law is supposed to produce in a life. And so we sit down and we look at this, and I was trying to think of an um, area, and I think Romans 8, the beginning of Romans 8, it goes through... Um, um, yeah, let's turn there. Romans 8, chapter, verse 1. This good portion of Scripture kind of help shine some light on this. Because the law is good, we don't neglect the law, but there is a greater law within us as believers that we follow. It's not a list of rules. It's not a list of regulations. It is the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, um, verse 1, says... There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, not because God's law was wrong or nothing, was weak because of our flesh, un, unobtainable. God did through sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He has condemned sin in the flesh. So therefore, the law is there. The standard is there. Our flesh has fallen. It. We are weak of being ever. Nobody can, nobody can do it. If you're trying to be righteous as a believer based on how you're living, I'm going to live a good biblical life or based on these rules, you're going to fall short. And that is not the requirement of what God knew. God knew, hey, you're going to fall short. As we see in the text later, there are people that died before the cross looking for the cross that had salvation. Abraham, faith was considered imparted to him. They were waiting for a savior. You know why? Because they came to the law and they knew they fell short. They knew they still needed a Savior. They were waiting for the Savior. All through the Old Testament, they knew a Savior was coming. They knew, therefore, the law was not complete. If you know somebody's going to come bail you out of jail, guess that what that means you're going to do? You're going to break the law, right? We're waiting for the person to come bail us out of jail. Therefore, you must have failed the law somewhere. And so you see this, and, and we see this law of the Spirit, and 
you can see this come out of whack two ways. You can see people go totally legalistic. I'm going to live by this list of rules. I'm going to debate the list of rules. I'm going to live by them. And they neglect a relationship with God. They're not living in the Spirit. They're not sensitive to how He's guiding their life and walking Him. Or you see the other thing is, I'm not going to read any of this. And we're just going to live by the Spirit, man. We're just, whatever God does, we're just moving with it. You know, and we're doing things that he'd consider horrible, abominable, or straight out against his word. But, you know, I'm full of the Spirit, so therefore I'm going to go by the law of the Spirit, you know, and throw it. No, there's, there is a balance, and the balance is being current in your relationship with God. If you're just after an emotional thing and you're not after the person, if you're just after a feeling, you don't have a relationship with God that's strong. Or if you're just into the, the letters and all this and down this and this and these are the rules, you don't have it. If you compare this to marriage, if I had a list of, hey, these are my wedding vows, hon, and I've completed them every day, don't we have a good relationship? See, I did this, 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 I bought you flowers here, I've done all these steps. She wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be a happy marriage. Men, you know that. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? But at the same time, if you go, you know, I just... I just feel I love you in my heart. I don't, you know, I'm so excited. I don't want to talk to you. I told you I loved you when we got married. If something changed, I'd let you know. Right now, I'm enjoying our marriage. Why do I have to talk to you? I mean, if we have no communication, if I'm not in your word, understanding your heart and your word, and it's a one-sided relationship, that don't work too well. Cain, it didn't work out too well for him. God has standard. God has rules. And so you see this balance of where we need to be. And it's interesting because we can sway you one way or another. And these men were so into their law and their self-righteousness instead of seeking the word of God. And we need to be that way. We need to be in our heart following full of the Holy Spirit with Christ, obeying what he says. So therefore, we have not our own righteousness, not righteousness because we're still walking in the Spirit, but our righteousness is now His righteousness because we're doing what He says. When the Bible says, you know, the man who knows what's good and does not do it to him is sin, how does he know what's good? Well, because you're in a current relationship with God, and if you're doing something, it's not, it's not. If I know what's right and I don't do it, well, how do I know what's right? Well, because God's Holy Spirit, I'm in a relationship, He's speaking to me. You know, and, and we, you cannot change that relationship or trade it in for any other kind of righteousness. And so, as he goes through this and we look at it in light of that, of what God's dealing with here, their heart, their heart and their love of money and the things, and, and them feeling that they have right standing by God, from God by their possessions, Right? This next verse he kind of throws in there. At first it seems totally out of place. It's like, where did this come from? Verse 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband also commits adultery. What? I mean, we're going through this thing and then suddenly he throws this in there. It's like, where did that come from? Why does that, how does that fit with the... Testament, the old law and stuff. Well, there was already a going on debate. They've asked Jesus about this a couple times. Because at the time, the Pharisees, the well-off Pharisees, had probably married over 30 times. And what they were going by is they, there was this one uh, you know, rabbi, they go by Hillel, who said, hey, you know, you can divorce your wife because Moses gave us the ability to divorce. And Jesus already 
convicted him that he only gave it you know the ability or the allowance to divorce not because he liked it not because it was his plan but because of hardness of your heart but they would divorce their wife because of an unfavor or 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 an uncleanliness you could divorce his wife he said so now the debate comes okay what is uncleanliness so the next rabbi abaca comes along and says well uncleanliness let's define that you know this guy said you could write a write a certificate over uncleanliness and uncleanliness can mean she was uh, rude to you in public you can divorce her for that Um, she burnt the toast she burnt your meal you know and coming along and he goes you know what even if you find out that she's not as pretty looking as another girl she's now unclean to you and you can divorce her so they were just any reason at all they could you know, divorce. And so Jesus is dealing with that going, hey, that this right. You guys think you're righteous and you're missing the law and the prophets and all these things. And if you look, they knew better. This was, this was something that was simply said where they'd be convicted. It, it'd be like in here, like now, if I said, okay, you guys think, okay, you guys are pretty good Christians. You guys follow the laws? Yeah, okay. Do you guys follow the law of the land? The Bible says we should, we're under a governing law. We should follow the law of the land as long as it doesn't contradict with the Bible. You agree with that? Yes, yeah, pastor, I do that. Okay, you pay your taxes. Yeah, I pay my taxes. I make sure I do a really good job on that. Yeah, so you're all about obeying that law? Okay. How many of you guys sped this week? Now there's no more argument, right? You're like, oh, we all failed. Only unless you don't have a car, you know, who jaywalked. No, but you sit there and you go, right? It was one of those subjects in the day. The second Jesus broke this up, they all knew they were wrong. In their heart, there was no denying it. Okay, you shouldn't do this. And if you do this, you're committing adultery. Boom, I'm going to brush this one thing out. You took not just one of the, the, the statues you added on to the commandments. You took the seventh commandment of adultery, and you're committing it all the time. That's the point why he just drops this right there. And at that point, it just reveals their heart, if they were willing. You know, some probably, ah, I'm out of here, you know, forget this. But it, it, it exposed them. It left them exposed. There was no getting out of this, and there was no arguing it. And um, as you study through this and you throw that little thing in, that's why Jesus said it, was because of what was going on in the text. Now, again, and, and this is where you can go rabbit holes for days. Well, because Jesus said this here, right? Well, in other scripture, in Matthew, it says you can divorce somebody if they were involved in fornication. That's the, except for fornications added in this in Matthew. And they say, okay, that's the word pornea. And so, you know, that's used several different ways in the Bible. But that refers to Jewish culture because in Jewish times, you could, like Mary, be betrothed. And it took a divorce to be out of a betrothal, right? So therefore, it's talking about that time of betrothal. If you found out she was unfaithful or had been with another man before, you could divorce her then before you consummated the marriage. And that's the only time in scripture that you're allowed to get divorced, they'll make that argument. It's a hard truth, you need to live with it. Well, okay, let's keep going down that rabbit hole. That sounds good, right? Good argument, you guys all good with that? Yeah, sounds biblical, I understand that. I understand this time frame. We don't have that in our culture these days, good. What should have happened to Mary when Joseph found out she was with child? Stoned. Okay, so if your wife dies because she's been stoned, can you remarry? Yeah. It's real easy. In that time, therefore, if you committed adultery in marriage, did you have to worry about if it was okay to divorce your spouse or not? No, they were stoned and they're dead and you can remarry because that marriage contract's over when they die. Okay, and you can keep going down that rabbit hole and debate all the time. 
Again, when you get into Scripture and you look at it, trust the Holy Spirit. What is the Bible telling you? What is the Bible speaking to you? And so many times people want to qualify, put it in there. If you're current with the Holy Spirit and you walk through a relationship or you've gone through a relationship and the pastor's God's grace, focus on what he's calling you to do now. Right? If your spouse has committed adultery and this and this and somebody says you have biblical grounds for divorce, does that mean you should? No, it means you need to pray and seek God. You need to pray and seek God regardless and have a peace and walk in the Spirit. Be reliant on it. Don't be scared of it. Don't take it to the, we see an abuse of it and people running around and doing crazy things and justifying their actions based on what God's told them, supposedly. There is a thing. But if you're a current, I have total faith God's going to speak to you. And as believers, when you counsel somebody the best counsel to give them would be, here's the Bible. Here, let me show you how to read this. See, there's some verses here, and you can look up verses on that and just pray and seek God on that, man. Because God might have had you do something in your situation that was going to be different than what they did. Most of the time we go, well, God, when I went through that, let me give you step A, B, C, and D, and this is what he had me do. Your heart, your wife's heart, everybody's heart in it, totally different. You know, I, I love it when you come into counseling. I, I love what um, Chuck Smith, assistant, used to say, you know, get a guy in counseling, girl in counseling, they talk and they back and forth and back and forth. And you say, okay, what I want you to do is get in the, together in the morning, read your Bible for 15 minutes and pray and just seek God for two weeks and come back and talk to me. Two weeks they come back, this, 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 this. He goes, so, did you get together and pray and seek God for in the morning? Well, we wanted to, but we didn't. Why don't you just tell us what to do here and there and this and that? And he goes, no, I'm not going to. I'm not a great counselor. Nobody's ever called Romaine. He goes, nobody's ever called me a great counselor. I want you to meet with the great counselor for 15 minutes every morning, and if he can't help you, I can't. Meet with God. Seek God. Be reliant on it. And that's where you sit down and, and you know, well, what happens if people do that? They're going to grow. It's going to be awesome. So you see so many things when you, when you see religion grow and, and, and things. If anybody's going, hey, no, 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 I don't want you to read your Bible. Just do what I say. I don't care if you disagree with me. You disagree with me on the, I'll keep reading, keep studying, keep going there. And if I'm seeking God with the Holy Spirit and God needs to correct something in my life, he's going to be faithful to do it. And if it's you, he's going to be faithful to do it. Ask my wife. God's really good at those things. You know, she shuts up and prays a lot. And then God beats me up, and then we're good. No. <laughs> she, she does. I mean, you know, she's not here today. She's not feeling good. But, you know, she goes, there's, there's times she's sitting there. I've been, been telling him something for three years. He goes to men's retreat, comes home, goes, guess what we're doing? I'm like, wow, you came up with that all by yourself, you know? So she has every right. <laughs> but you sit there, and don't trade that for anything. That personal relationship for a list of rules or anything else, seek God in that situation. There's how many situations come up to you where the Bible isn't, oh, well, it's like, this. I don't know this or this or study. Trust the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're walking, trust it. There's sometimes situations that come up and immediately go, what's right, what's wrong? I don't know. I, I don't, I can't pull out a verse for that, but the Holy Spirit's telling me we shouldn't do this. You know? You had other movements back in the past. They had shepherding houses and shepherding ministries. You couldn't marry, you couldn't buy a car, you couldn't get a job, you couldn't do nothing without the church's approval. These men, you know, they were going to shepherd you, disciple, because they could discern God's will. 
no, seek God. You know, are you to do that? You know, oh, well, should I take out a loan for a new car? You know, don't ask me, pray about it. I can say getting in debt. I can point out some good scriptural things here, but you should really pray about what God wants to do in that situation. I, I trust if you're, you know, it's so funny how we can, and, and willing, two things, willing, men are willing to speak when they shouldn't for God, right? And men, men are more willing to listen to men than to God, right? I'd rather you just tell me what I'm supposed to do than pray and seek and, you know, because God might reveal some other things that's not, it's not even the issue. I want, you know, I was just wondering, should I buy a Hummer or a Carvette, Lord? And then, you know, and if I see God, God says, keep the stupid car you have because it will run for another hundred years. The shoes will not wear out. I mean, well, you know, I might not want to hear what he has to say, you know. The, 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 I might be asking the wrong question to begin with. And guess who knows that? God. And so these men here, they are so reliant and, and reliant on their self-righteousness in their head, and, and he's trying to open their eyes, trying to pull them out of the situation they're in, go, here, let's slow down, let's look at this, I'm going to share this story with you. And, and some say it's a story, there's a whole debate, is this a parable or a story? Well, Jesus never uses a man's name in a parable, he uses this man, Lazarus. So it's obviously um, a, a story. And was it future tense, past tense? I tell you, if anybody could know this happened, would be Jesus. Now, is it a parable? I don't know. And ultimately, to the main of what's going on here, doesn't make a bit of difference. I mean, I sit there and I look, again, you look at all the debates. Is it a parable? Or is it a story? I study and go, well, yeah, that makes sense. It could be a parable. Then I look at the story. You know, there's a man in there. His name is Lazarus. Well, what do we know about the Old Testament and names? Your name's usually reflected something about you. So it could just be saying, we're going to call this guy Lazarus because that means God's helper. So then it puts a picture on his character. Or it could have been a man named Lazarus. It could have even been a man that all these Pharisees knew. We saw that beggar named Lazarus and we knew this rich guy. And then it really hits home. But ultimately, it doesn't change the truth of what's going on because what's going on here, God's dealing again with their heart and their love of money. In verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. Now this, this rich man is not just rich, not just possessions. He is very well off. The color or the dye for purple was very expensive. There's What it is said is, in the workers of purple, there's a shellfish, you have to crush it, there's a little drop of purple in the throat of this little shellfish, and you get that little drop, and it was a good stain for purple. So it was a lot of work to get a little drop of stain to where purple clothing is. He is not just rich, but he is living it up. He is well arranged. He is there. He is in fair linen, um, and a fine linen translates linen that is light as air. Okay, so he got garments, they're light, they're not heavy. And so he is dressed, he's arrayed, and, and he fares sumptuously every day. He eats gourmet food from all over the world at any time, which we are spoiled compared. You know, I mean, you think about spices and everything else you'd have to get to make a meal we have these days. You know, a TV dinner, all the different spices in there. Take that to the ancient world. Figure out where all those pieces would have to come and travel, right? This guy is having this for every meal. So he is well off. He is not just so well off in the context 
when Jesus shares this statement, these Pharisees hearing this are probably going right on. That's what I want to be. This is the guy. You, you've just explained what we are all hoping for. You've just explained the most obviously blessed, righteous man ever because none of them were even close to this, right? This style of life. And so he, he, he brings this out and they would be jealous of it. But here's a contrast. Verse 20 says, But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and they licked his sore. So you have one man clothed in purple. You have another man covered and clothed in sores. And, and he's laid at this guy's gate. So this guy has enough money to have a gate. This is like, this word gate is a gate like a gate to a city, like the gate of Jerusalem. So this guy's got his own kingdom. You know, he's got his own gate. And, and this man is laid. This, is, this word means he is set. He cannot even get himself there. So somehow he is lame, unable to walk, and he is put in front of this guy's gate, and he's, his purpose of being there is to catch the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, the basic things, you know. And, and even then, his companions or his swords are bad enough where the dogs are coming to lick them. His only companions, and when you think of the Jewish mind that says, you know, thank God you didn't make me a Jew, a dog, or a woman. He's there, and that's his only companion. the only person, if you would say, are even caring for him, are dogs. And so he is in this horrible state, and a state they would consider this man to be nothing more than fire for hell. He, he, he has no value. Whatever he was or his heritage or his line would not matter. This person would only be worth keeping the flames of hell hot in the Jewish mind, in these Pharisees' minds. That would be the only reason for this man's existence in their mind. And he's there. And it says they, he was hoping to keep the crumbles from their head and hands. And back then they ate with hands, not utensils. Um, one, of the, one of the scholars says, you know, what they did is to wipe your hands, you'd use bread crumbs. You'd use the bread and you wipe your hands. Well, that kind of makes sense. If you're finishing up your meal, you have some bread, you wipe off the extra sausage to your hands instead of licking your fingers, and then you'd eat the bread. Well, if you're rich... You don't even need to eat the bread. You throw it away. And that's what this guy is, or was kind of saying this guy is hoping for. You know, and, and so the Jewish mind, they're thinking, man, this guy would be hated by the God. He'd be the leech righteous. His, whatever his life produced or his own personal righteousness, he deserves this. God is punishing him. And then, verse 22, and so, this is, this is yeah, just blow your mind, guys, here, ready? So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Isn't that amazing? They both died. You know, you think the rich man wanted to die. No, they, everybody dies. Do you know that? Anybody in here had a near-death experience? Guess what? It's not going to be a near-death experience eventually for all of us. It's going to be 100% full-on death at some point. We're all headed that way. It doesn't matter how much money you have or anything else. And they both died in where they were there. And we see the poor man is carried by angels. What a beautiful picture. Carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom where a place of care or, or up, you know, like a child would be nestled 
in his mom's arms up near the chest. And, and, and so it's nestled there. And so you have this picture that this man, this beggar, is carried off to this place. And the rich man is bar- was buried. Okay? Doesn't say anything about the poor man being married, you notice. Back then, if he died, he was probably just hauled away with the trash, the refuge, the dump. You know what I mean? They would have gotten rid of the body. Not cared. The rich man, we'll find out later, has five brothers. What do you think happened after his funeral? Everybody sat down and divided up the wealth, and they threw a big party for him, and, you know, sent him off, and all, all the expense that would have been spent on this man's funeral. And here the one goes. But a bigger shocking, verse 23, and, the, and beginning in torments in Hades. So he died, he was buried, and beginning in, the, in torments in Hades. The beginning of them, not all of them, but the beginning of them. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and, La- and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, he's there and he's in this torment. His life now has no one quality of life and everything else has no reflection on what he has after. The whole rich man's life and everything else has no bearing on where he is after, what his possessions were, and nor does the poor man have any desire or bearing or change on where his possessions are. They now are both dead. But here's the shocker. They're both still there. They're not gone. They're not obliterated out of existence. They're not just forgotten. There is an afterlife. And again, to the Jewish mind, that would have been kind of a shock. They would have thought, you know, this guy, you know, if anything, if if there was an existence after death, this poor man would be there just to keep hell's flames hot. If he exists at all. If any of us exist at all, would have been their thought. And so they're both there. And now Hades is a word that comes from the Greek. It means underworld, kind of. Or, or if you go back farther, it goes kind of from the ideal of shale, which means the grave from death. It's, it's not necessarily a, a place, but a time after. When you die, we're going to call it Hades. You, you go to Hades, right? This place after, the underworld. And so one of these people, this rich man, is in an area of torment. It's an area of torment. And the other one is in an area of comfort. Now, there's all kinds of debate of what Hades is, and did Jesus descend there when he died on the cross? And, well, he couldn't have descended there. Again, rabbit trails of, you know, it said when he said, I commit my spirit to the Father, therefore he's with the Father. He told the, 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 the uh, man next to him on the cross, today I'll see you in paradise. How could he have gone down the Apostle Creed? You know, there's said in the Apostle Creed that he went down, but that was 400 years after Christ. Again, rabbit trails, right? And again, most of these rabbit trails, when you slow down and look at them, I, I, I always think there's, there's two things. One is justifying yourself before men, and the other one seems to be putting God in a box or trying to make God a man. So they're saying, well, obviously God couldn't have ascended down to hell and leave the captives free because he's in heaven he'd see the guy in paradise. Well, that's true of me. You can't say, hey, I saw Tim in Manteca and I saw Tim in Lodi and I saw Tim over here all in the same hour. That doesn't work. You can't see me in all the places. But Tim is not omnipresent. So can God go down and set the captives free and see the sinner in paradise? He's outside. Yes. 
It's not an either or. I mean, and that's where, again, you can trace that rabbit trail, but then you start to either find out you're putting God in a box or you're just trying to make your point where the Holy Spirit, where God isn't trying to make a point. And you're no longer focusing on what the point of the scripture is, what the content is. And what the point is, there are two places very evident. And if you're going to get distracted by a rabbit trail, this isn't the place to do it. Because this is a harsh reality. There is torment. And besides there being torment, there are two people that are still there. They're not annihilated. They're not gone. That are living or now in that position for the rest of their lives. As we will see. In verse 24 it says, He cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send me Lazarus that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in flames. So now as he sits there, even there he starts to cry out to Father Abraham for whatever recognition he has. I mean, how do you know who Father Abraham is? But he does have a, an understanding. He's calling out, say, send Lazarus. That guy, that big was just at my gate. Just send him over to give me a drop of water. I see him over there. Send him, send him over for, you know... I'm still giving orders, right? like he's in charge. No, you're here, you're in that situation, crying out. The reality of that. You know, um, hell is real and it isn't a party. It isn't a party. It isn't, it's a place of torment that, that, is, that should be frightening, that should be a hard truth, that should be scary. Judgment is coming. It is deserved. We all agree there should be judgment. And people go, oh, how can your, a good God judge people? Well, how could a good God not judge people? If a good God, if you really believe your God is all loving, all kind, he shouldn't judge anybody. Okay. If we're going to do that, we need to call up the prison guards, let everybody out of jail, no matter what crime. They, how, if God can't judge, why could we judge? Why can we have justice and say this man killed somebody, they should be punished for it? If we do that, how much more should a loving God or a true God judge sin? So there is judgment. It is coming. It is serious. You know, I, it's funny. I, I, when we first moved into our home, um, we had some Mormons come by knocking on the door offering to help. And my little sister, uh, being from, you know, serving at Gospel for Asian stuff, was there. And she has a different view of some of the stuff they do being there. And, and, and what they do is when they'll come, they'll come share the gospel with us. But they will not share it with somebody who's here in the United States that doesn't have citizenship that's from Iraq, Iran, or one of those countries, Muslim countries. And so the question begs, why? Why don't you have missionaries in these areas? Well, because if they aren't citizens, there's a chance they could return home. And if you've converted from Muslim into Mormon, they could kill you for your conversion. And we wouldn't want that to happen. And I'm thinking, yeah, if I'm selling Costco memberships, right? Here, Costco membership, wait a minute, you can get killed to have that if you go back home? No, we're good. But if the consequence is hell, eternal hell, death isn't the worst thing that's that, right? If you really believe there's a hell, and this person, so okay, let me get this right. So he go, you don't share with him. He goes home, and he dies an old age. He lives to 150 years old, and he dies. Where does he go? 
goes to hell. So that's what my sister kind of asked them, and they were stumped, like, think about that. In other words, the people who have trained you don't even believe in what you're saying. They don't believe it's worth you dying for. But you're out here knocking doors for it. Okay. But you look at that, and you go, you know, hell is serious. There's, there's a value. There's, there's a consequence. There's a reason we need a Savior. What are we saved from? There's a reality. And sometimes we can so water it down, not think about it, because it's scary. It's a boogeyman. I don't like it. You know, who in here wants to do a good study on what hell's like? Anybody? Oh, I'm good. But we come across it, and we come across a scripture, and here Jesus is warning them. You talk about a warning. This is what's coming. Here this man, who you guys would have thought was awesome, amazing, and righteous, is now in this torment, is now in this situation. Verse 25, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your life you received good things. Likewise, Lazarus received evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. He brings this out and even Abraham saying, son, is a shock. The Jewish, the Pharisees would have sweared, they said, hey, at, the, at Hades, out there, Abraham stands guard at the gate of Hades and hell. And he stands there and he makes sure none of his children, none of his offspring go. Just in case they don't make it on the other, he's guaranteed none of us can go. By your birthright, there's no way you're going. What does Jesus say right here? He says, but Abraham said to who? Son. Who is where? No, he, Abraham didn't say you, Mr. Hey, come here. No, son. Meaning you were my child, and in this life you received all these good things. You received what everybody would have thought was blessings from God. And this man would have said, hey man, he got a bum stick. God doesn't like him. He's been judged by God. He's, you know, you shouldn't even touch him. Maybe God's judgment will jump out on you like a cootie or something. Keep away from him. That was their view. But yet their lives and what was given to them in lives and what was provided them in lives have no reflection on what happens after. You know, and, and you get, again, you get people looking at hell and Hades and they think, well, I'm going to go down there, I'm going to party and this and that. Okay, well, Satan's getting thrown in the lake of fire. He's not in Hades, he's here now. Okay, and he does have a kingdom set up here now. But when he gets to the lake of fire, the great abyss, as it's called in the Bible, there isn't a kingdom. There isn't, you know, whatever this crazy thought is, oh, when we get there, hell's going to be great. I don't want to be with all you Christians. I want to be partying. You know, all the hot chicks are going to be in hell. There isn't a kingdom there. It's a place of torment and it's serious. And, and even at that same extent, when they make a mockery of it, they make a mockery of the truth of it, it is sad to see. It is something to be serious about and think about. Verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here to us. So there is a great gulf, okay? And that can be a chasm, a cut, um, Grand Canyon. There's a, a, regardless of how you translate it, an immovable object. It is fixed. It is fixed throughout time. It is definite. It is not moving. And there is no going from one place to the other. There's no purgatory. There's no earn your way out of heaven. There's no praying to saints. If there was a praying to a saint, who is this guy praying to? 
Dear Abraham, come help me. Can't do a darn thing about it. Out of all the saints, you think Abraham would have had some pull down there, right? Can't do a darn thing about it. When this life and you have, there's one opportunity. When you have that one opportunity, you leave this world, it is eternal. It is set and it is serious. Verse 27, and then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, what would you, that you would send him to my father's house? Send Lazarus over there. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. If they only knew where they were headed, if they only knew what they were going to, they definitely wouldn't want to come here. Just send Lazarus over there. Tell Lazarus to go back and send him. I mean, you talk about a crazy thought. This guy who sat at your gate, they weren't far off. They weren't far neighbor's distance. Man, this guy knew this guy sitting at his lake. Enough to recognize him from afar, right? How much did he have to walk by that guy in front of his gate or saw him? Oh, thank you, I'm not that guy. And like that guy going back would be able to say anything to his brothers, right? Show back up, that's just that beggar. Why would we trust you? But hey, just send them back. They'll tell them. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, it's interesting when you sit there and your people go, oh, what happened to the people before Christ? Guess what? They have the prophets, they have Abraham, they have the same ability to be saved and have that relationship and sincere relationship with God as us, because they have Moses and the prophets. And he says, if he, they're not going to listen to them, he, they're not going to listen to somebody even coming back from the dead. Look, you know, just send somebody back from the dead, they'll listen to them. Right? And you think about, you, we can all kind of know where this is going because we know how the story ends, right? But the Jewish guy's sitting there thinking about that as they're sitting there and the story unfolds and he goes, hey, just go back and tell them where they're going. Warn them. And Jesus is going, they have these things to pay attention to. They have exactly what you have. I'm going to give you a warning. You have everything you need, even right this moment. Well, let's, Jesus is going to go, okay, we'll take it to another step. And he even knows what they need to do. This guy sitting there in Hades knows what does he have to do to have not been there. Was it his riches? Was it anything he did? No, he knew he needed to repent. He's got to repent. He should have changed his ways. Just tell them to change their direction, change their ways. Verse 31, it says, But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and they do not hear the prophets, nearly will, will be persuaded through one who is raised from the dead. And again, 2020, you look back and you go, Yeah, sadly, there were some men sitting there that weren't. There were some men that were sitting there that probably remembered this and went, Oh no, he raised from the dead. He's right. I don't want to be the one that wasn't persuaded. But Jesus rose. He died and he rose from the grave. And if you're truly listening to the law and the prophets, studying the whole Bible, even if you just had that, you know we need a Savior, you know he's coming, you know you need a relationship with him. This man who sat at the gate, even though he had nothing and nothing given to him and, and what would be considered a horrible life, still had a relationship, had everything that was necessary for life. 
And the man that thought he had everything for life had nothing for life. It's a stiff warning to think about that that reality is out there. It should put an urgency on when you slow down and you look about the people around you of what is coming, the judgment that is coming. You know, I think as a culture, we have gotten rid of very much the ideal of hell. I mean, there are, there are even a couple books out there that hell isn't even a real place, you know. God loves all. It's all going to end up the same. Which, if you're going to take that stance that there is no hell, then why did we need a Savior? What did he save us from? Our bad habits? I mean, what, what did he save us from? Our negative thinking? It makes a mockery of the whole Scripture. But if you try to live by the law and not live in a relationship with God, it's going to leave you, no matter what possessions you have, short. If you try to live by you know, prophecies and those things, it's going to leave you short. You cannot have righteousness in and of yourself. Your righteousness only comes through that relationship with God. When somebody comes, and, and in Timothy, when it talks about, you know, a man that desires to be a pastor must be blameless, you cannot find a blameless man. They all can have blame, but that word means to lay hold of. Can somebody go to you and go, oh, you're a sinner, you did this once, and I can say, yep, and the board knows about it, everybody knows about it, my wife knows about it, this knows about it, and I've repented, and me and God are good with that. So, anything else you'd like to talk about? I <laughs> mean, you know, I have no problem there. And that's where it is, it's, is where are you at? I mean, you sit there and go, you know what, I, I'm righteous before God. As I sit here now, I know where I'm at in relationship with God. God's dealing with me on these things. I'm repenting, I'm walking, and I'm trusting him. And the amazing thing with our righteousness, because it's not based on us, it, it, it seems like we can lose it in a sense, not that we actually lose salvation or anything like that in a sense, but I can really quickly get out of a right relationship with God by seeking myself. But if I'm seeking him and I'm in the word and there, I know with confidence, without a doubt, that I'm right. I know how he's speaking to me. I know his words. I'm faithful to study it. I'm not going to just follow blindly. I don't have to follow blindly. God put me in a time with a Bible, with the computer. I can study the word of God. I'm not illiterate. Praise God, I can know his word and know him so intimately. But I'm also going to be held responsible for that. And so when you sit down and you look at that and go, you know, sit there, it's amazing. If you ever find yourself trying to justify yourself to people, that's a bad place to be. Why are you trying to justify yourself to people? All I need to be justified is before God. Right? And we can get that. Well, this or this fellowship or this thing, you know, and it happens in churches and it happens all over the place. But, man, some of the... some. Some of the Christians are the, no offense, are the worst. <laughs> you know, well, this and this and this, you know, well, if God was really blessing your fellowship, it would be growing or not growing or this or that, you know, and since we're small, I can say that. No, you, you sit there and you look at these things, or what's our standard? These men had something highly esteemed that was an abomination from God. What's highly esteemed in your life? What's highly esteemed? I was thinking about that. Am I looking forward to being 80 years old and still getting spanked by the Holy Spirit in the morning when I do my devotions? Am I highly esteeming that future? 
right? That's what our future should be. That'd be awesome, right? Wow, I am still getting corrected at eight because I know I'm not going to be any more righteous or less flesh or something until I'm dead, right? But that's the goal, right? Not that, ooh, wow, look at that guy. God's done all this in his life. No, I still have a relationship with God. I'm still current with him. I still, you know, wake up in the morning and he speaks to me and I repent and I cry on his shoulder and he forgives me and we grow and go on. That's the, that's the ultimate goal. But sadly, many times you want to never hear anybody in a church say that or a fellowship. What's your goal? My goal is to be totally relying on Jesus and repenting years from now. Okay, our church mission statement. In the future, we're going to repent, and then we're going to repent, and we're going to seek God, and we're going to repent, and we're going to repent again, <laughs> and watch them grow. But that's the truth of it, right? As we sit and we look at the gospel. And so these men... Jesus is sitting there, and it's interesting. There's not this great follow-up to the end of the story. There isn't this argument after. He just cuts right to the truth. Here is the reality with it. We don't don't see a response from him. Here's a reality. And you sit there and you look, and and I... You know, I'm guilty of it. I I can get in my flesh. I can get in my own direction, in my own ways. And it is so... What amazes me is, out of all the things you can do in your life throughout the day, the hardest thing is sitting down sometimes and spending time with the Lord. And it seems that's the greatest attack, right? I mean, there, there's, I can easily, more simply, go on a mission trip than wake up in the morning and pray sometimes, it seems like, right? Just to get in the Word, you know? If you have children, you understand this. If you don't have children, you understand it. It just seems like everything's against it. You know what I mean? You take the time, I'm going to study the Word of God, and you pull out the computer, and I'm start looking this, and then, boom, some ad pops up or something. You're like, I don't know. Facebook ever distract you guys when you're studying the Word of God at all? Like, I wonder what's going on in the world. Let me check. Somebody could use prayer. Let me check. That's just me. It happened this morning. I was sitting there and going, like, why are you up early if you're going to waste 15 minutes, you could have slept 15 more minutes longer than look at Facebook, so. But anyways, so we sit there, we look at the Word of God, and we look at what the heart of the Scripture is. Where is it going? What is the point? And the point is very simply, their righteousness, their, their view of their righteousness was based on their circumstances and the things they had. That's not the way we should look at our lives. We shouldn't think God loves me more because he's given me something or taken something away. Our righteousness should be current with the relationship with God. If you're current in the relationship with God, it doesn't matter your worldly circumstances. You have every piece going, hey, I'm walking with God. I know where I'm at. It doesn't matter what my finances are or any of those things. And at the same time, we should look at each other that way. You know, when I, you go to Guatemala, you go to these third world countries, you see kids starving and stuff, and you go, wow, are they less blessed? Are they less loved? Or how do you reconcile that? You know, here you're giving them an orange, and that's the only thing. A beat-up orange you would not pick up off the ground. That's the only food they're going to have for three days. Does God love them any more, any less? Or... So those things, we sit and we can make those judgments. And that's where we need to check our heart. But if you're current with God and you're current with that relationship with God, suddenly you get his heart and you see that person and you go, you know what? That person, yeah, doesn't look well, doesn't look this, this, that. I mean, they look like that beggar. But guess what? I know God loves them and values them and I'm going to 
love on them and care for them regardless. Instead of, you know, thinking ill will, you know, oh, they deserve that. Obviously, if they're in that situation, they, you know, some, they did something. Maybe not. So let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're truthful with us, that you, that you're just, Father, and you're warning us of the dangers to come. And that even these Pharisees, God, you loved so much that you were unwilling to not be truthful with them, to not be loving with them. God, to do everything possible just to open their hearts and their eyes to the reality of what they're in, Father. And we just pray you continue to do that in our lives each and every day. God, there, there wouldn't be a time that we'd be able to look back late in life, Father, and just look at your faithfulness and meeting with us each and every day. That it wouldn't be a list of our accomplishments, but just a list of how you've worked in our lives, how you've spoken to us, how you've guided us, how you've protected us, how you've cared and how you've loved us. We just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.